Hello, and welcome to this special edition of MLB Morning Coffee. This is your host, Greg Moraz, coming to you from the Ocean Avenue Studios in San Francisco, California. Because Major League Baseball is on hold due to the coronavirus, and there's really not a whole lot of news to report other than injuries, we've decided to go into a 30-part series. What 30-part series might you ask? Well, a 30-part series that gives the top 10 players of every Major League Baseball franchise. The first team in which we will reveal the top 10 list is the San Francisco Giants. One of the reasons why we chose the Giants is that we are based here in San Francisco. The Giants are a franchise that has spanned two cities, New York and San Francisco, over their 100-plus year history. The San Francisco Giants, in their modern form, have won three World Series championships, but the New York Giants, especially those of the early 1900s, were a force to be reckoned with across Major League Baseball. Joining me to give his top 10 list, he is a sports information director at the University of San Francisco. He is a lifelong Giants fan, and I would say as close to a amateur baseball historian as you can get. I mean, he is a professional sports information director, but this guy knows the ins and outs of baseball. The only thing that isn't calling him a baseball historian is his business card. Please welcome Mark Rivera. Mark, what's going on, my friend? I, I think like everybody else, I'm just starving for baseball. Tomorrow's supposed to be opening day, and it's not going to be. So I'm happy to try and find any way I can to talk about it. <laughs> you are USF's baseball SID, so at least you got some baseball in before all baseball is shut down. So, I mean, you got to be grateful for that. I, I did. I actually um, feel like I have a little bit of like a cheating advantage each year in that my baseball season starts um, mid-February every year, like regular season games that count, not spring training or pitcher catchers reporting. Um, and in fact, the preparation for that starts, uh, you know, in, in December or January, depending on when I can get around to it. So uh, my baseball season gets to start a little bit earlier because we, uh, we we do the college baseball thing. And we did get 17 games in this year before things got shut down. And actually, I would say today I just got to have a conversation with our head coach. Um, I have a couple of story ideas. We want to keep keep producing content um, even while games aren't being played. And all I did was just talk ball with the guy. I mean, he's easy to get quotes out of anyway, but I have these stats stories. And as a stats nerd, I can just ask him about this guy who stole a bunch of bases in 17 games. And we had a 15 minute conversation and I just I hang up with the guy and, and I, I'm just so elated to have spoke baseball with someone else and I, I'm not flattering you too much I I'm, I'm feel the same way when I get to talk about baseball with you too man so I'm excited to to be on this and we've been meaning to have you on for quite some time and it's funny that you bring up other content ideas obviously with college baseball done for the season due to COVID-19 university athletic departments all across the country trying to come up with new content. And that's why we're doing these top 10 lists here on MLB Morning Coffee, because there's just not that much news to talk about. Now, I said that I wanted to start with the Giants because of the fact that we are based here in San Francisco. But I feel like the Giants franchise is underappreciated in its entirety because so many people think of the 2010, 2012, 2014 Giants in the modern day. But there were a lot of great Giants teams that never won anything and a lot of Hall of Fame players that played on those teams. And I think it's important to kind of appreciate everybody that was a part of this franchise, even if they didn't contribute to a championship. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this I think a lot of baseball fans, historian or not, will acknowledge the fact that they know the Giants used to be in New York. The Dodgers used to be in New York. But um, this is a franchise that has only lost 100 games once since it existed in 1883 or whatever it was. Um, I don't know that any other franchise at all, even with more World Series titles than the Giants, could say that. Uh, I was just flipping through some you know, baseball reference stuff before I jumped on here with you. And, um, you know, the Giants only won one pennant in the 60s. But they won 90 games like four or five times. That's just one decade, um, much less all the great players that were on those teams. So this team, this franchise has been good decade in, decade out. I think there was a dark period from like 
early 70s to that 100 loss season in 1985. But outside of that, this franchise and all of its history with its players and even coaches that come with it um, have been competitive every decade that since it's existed. That's true. And people also have to remember, it was a lot more difficult to make the playoffs back before this current division and wildcard system. You would have a lot of 90-win, 95-win teams that would not make the playoffs because your pennant was your trip to the World Series. So it was a lot more difficult to make the playoffs back then. So let's get into it, Mark. We're going to start off with a couple of honorable mentions. We're going to do this countdown style, just like David Letterman used to, 10 to 1. I have three honorable mentions. I mean, this is such a tough list. So I want to go with three honorable mentions. Two of them are modern day guys, and one of them is from way back in the day. My first one is from way back in the day. It's Gaylord Perry. Now, Gaylord Perry, in his own right, had a tremendous career. He pitched parts of 22 seasons in the major leagues. He started his career with the San Francisco Giants. His best season in a Giants uniform was in 1970. And check this out, Mark. He made 41 starts. He won 23 games. He led the National League, granted, check that, the major leagues in innings pitched at 328 and two-thirds. He had five shutouts, 23 complete games. The year before that, he didn't win as many games, 19. He had a 249 ERA in 39 starts. He pitched 325 innings and had 26 complete games. His best overall season was with the Cleveland Indians in 1972, 24-16 record with a 192 ERA in 342 and two-thirds innings. He had 29 complete games, five shutouts. I mean, Gaylord Perry had a tremendous career. He was elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1991. One of the reasons why he's only honorable mention here is that a lot of his success came after his time with the Giants. But he certainly is known for a lot of those mid-60s Giants teams where he was basically winning a minimum of 15 games every year. My second honorable mention is Tim Lincecum. And the reason why he's an honorable mention is that he never played that long. That's the only problem with Big Tom Timmy Jim. He won two Cy Youngs in 2008 and 2009, and his 2008 year was just off the charts. He was 18-5 and five with a 2.62 ERA. He had 265 strikeouts. He had a fielder's independent pitching percentage of 2.62, which is an advanced stat that somewhat calculates what your ERA is with average defense. It's kind of like the balancer of what great defense versus bad defense. It kind of measures where your ground balls went, your strikeouts, your fly balls, et cetera, et cetera. And he was the best in the league. In 2009, he had a 2.480 ERA, but the problem with Lincecum is he didn't stay healthy. And once 2012 came, he kind of fell off a cliff and we never really saw much from him again. And then my third honorable mention is Matt Kane. And the reason why I had to put Matt Kane in here is that he was a huge part in the Giants winning three World Series. And from 2009 to 2012, he won double-digit games. His best season came in 2012 when he pitched his perfect game. He had a 16-5 record with a 2.79 earned run average in 219 in the third innings of work. I feel like Matt Cain, if he had been able to stay healthy and stay productive, could have been a Hall of Fame pitcher. But these are honorable mentions. All of them had an impact on the franchise, but not as big of an impact as many of the guys that are in our top 10. I I think you're right about the longevity being extended uh, with health for Kane and Lincecum. Um, Kane, I think, obviously adding the longevity part, if Kane just got some more run support, he his numbers just would have been a lot more sexy. It was Kane and, and, and Lincecum who kind of began to convince awards voters that you didn't have to have 20 wins to win the Cy Young. Um, but I think with Kane's, you know, bulldog persona of eating up innings and always being consistent and, you know, two, nine to three, four ERAs. And he still did go 13 and 13, you know, just kind of like on average, not necessarily li- literally, but 
I mean, if he would have gotten some run support, he would have been having, you know, 21 and eight seasons every year, along with all those other numbers. And then you'd be talking about a guy who had multiple all-star games and Cy Youngs and, and, and who knows what else. And maybe the Giants also winning more games would have had better success as a franchise, too. So that always boosts mm-hmm. the guy, too. Um, I'm actually really excited that you have Gaylord Perry in your honorable mentions. I was a little bit afraid because um, we had our little pre-talk. And you had mentioned Gaylord Perry, actually a guy, oh God, I'm going to burn at the stake for this, but that I had kind of forgotten about. Um, I forget sometimes that he's a part of, you know, the Giants history. Um, But that's also where doing some of my, you know, my uh, research before our conversation there, where I came across that decade in the 60s. And the Giants went to one World Series, lost in seven games. Um, But Gaylord Perry's nine or 10 year stint with the Giants was almost completely in that 60s decade. And they were really, really good in that decade. Like I mentioned earlier, winning 90 games a year, always finishing second in the National League behind those powerful Cardinals teams who had Bob Gibson and Musial and all those guys. Um, But like you, the only reason I didn't want to put him on my top 10 was because he won Cy Young's and MVP votings and more all-star games in the AL. And that just, that doesn't mean he wasn't good with the Giants. Of course he was good. He had a sub three ERA in 10 years with the Giants, but I just didn't think it amounted to a lot of the success of the 10 people that I put on my list. I would certainly agree with that. And that's why they were in my honorable mentions, but obviously all three of them had a huge impact on the franchise. And I don't think a single one of them had a bigger cultural impact on the franchise than Tim Lincecum. And he's one of the ultimate what could have been if he had stayed healthy type of players. So now, without further ado, we go in to our top 10. I will begin and Mark will give his after I give mine. You kind of tempted me into this. And that's why this guy is my number 10, Mel Ott. Mel Ott hit 511 career home runs. He spent his entire career with the New York Giants from 1926 until 1947. He had a lifetime 304 batting average with a 414 on-base percentage. And granted, this was in an era where they weren't hitting a lot of home runs. Mel Ott hit over 30 homers six different times before the year 1940. He hit one 30-home run season after 1940. His consensus best year ever and you could have a couple of years in here was his 1932 season where he hit 38 homers hit 318 drove in 123 runs had an on base of 424 he also had a 1930 season where he had a 458 on base percentage mel ott never won the mvp award his best finish in the mvp was third in 1942 when he hit 30 homers, drove in 93 runs, had 109 walks, which led the league. Mel Ott led the league in walks six different times, and he had over 100 walks in 10 different seasons. The dude simply was an on-base machine, but he doesn't get the credit because he played in an era that a lot of people during the wartime forgot. Yeah, I, yeah, Mel Ott is sort of that early coming of uh, of Barry Bonds with all the walks and and you know people recognizing how good he was, um, not wanting to touch him. Um, you know, his name came to mind because of Giants lore. It's not a guy that I um, memorized all of his stuff. Obviously, I I know he's. Uh, retired number and all these great 500 home run club, but he's a guy that I had to, you know, look up because I don't have all the Giants 20s and 30s um, teams memorized. But what's impressive to me is as soon as the MLB All-Star game was created in what, 1990 or 1933, I think, whatever it was, boom, he was instantaneously like an 11-time consecutive All-Star. I mean, that's just how good he was in, in terms of across the league. Eight years in a row of 100-plus RBIs, um, uh, and, and I know today in metrics, people talk about uh, RBIs, you know, that's just where you are in the lineup. But I always say, dude, you step up to the plate. Somebody's got to bat those runs in. I don't, care. I don't care where you are in the lineup. Somebody has to bat them in. And so he was very, very good at that. And uh, 
And so, yeah, that's, uh, I'm glad he's on your list, at least there. Uh, he'll come up later for me. Um, I'll give you my number 10. And this is it's so funny. This is why you and I are like on a mind meld because you put this name in my head and my number 10 uh, is Will Clark. Um, I was going to mention this era during the honorable mentions, but there's an era of Giants baseball players from the mid 80s to the mid 90s um, that includes that era of success from like 87 to uh, 89 that had Kevin Mitchell and Will Clark and all the Atlee Hammockers and the Mike Krukos and all these teams. They were more lovable players than they were actually outstanding players. I know Kevin Mitchell wanted an MVP. Uh, I'm not saying that Will Clark wasn't good. He's on the list. He's not an honorable mention. He's on my list. Um, but he was also kind of short-lived in uh, in San Francisco. You know, he only was there for eight years, which I'm maybe I'm holding a Hall of Fame standard of, you know, minimum 10 years. I don't know. But um, uh, batting average was always a thing for me. Um, he was a really solid defensive player, too, at first base, won a gold glove. Um, but you know, a few times an all-star as well. And but he was more, again, part of the lore of the Giants, those fun 80s teams that revived the franchise from that 100-loss season in 1985. So that's why he's my my number 10. It's funny that you say that because I actually have Will Clark as my number nine. And one of the reasons why is that he played a big part on an era of Giants teams in that late 80s to early 90s that was very good. And a huge part of that 1989 team that probably would have had a chance to win the World Series. Will Clark had three different 100 RBI seasons as a part of those 80s and early 90s Giants. His best season probably was 89 when he had 111 RBIs. He scored a league-leading 104 runs. And that was the thing. He was just likable. I mean, I think that the stretch of success for Will Clark was so good in the time that he was a Giant that people kind of ignore the fact that after he left San Francisco and went to Texas, he didn't have that great of a career, relatively speaking. So Will Clark is my number nine. And it's kind of interesting just because you talk about that name factor and it goes from him to Mel Ott. I mean, Mel Ott's numbers were by and away better than Will Clark's, but I think Will Clark had a bigger impact on the franchise as a whole if that makes sense. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. That's, that's the, when I was a kid, I remember um, the, the Giants commercials on TV, they would play that, uh, that boys are back in town song and it'd be these big giant guys whose feet would fit like inside candlestick park. And they were just trying to sell you tickets. But, you know, Will Clark was always part of that. You know, he was always sort of the face, the eye black, all of that stuff. And then this year they're supposed to retire his number if um, they get the season going. So uh, I don't want to take anything away from his, from his talents. He had them, you know, they don't win that NLCS without him literally in 89. Um, but uh, just in terms of greats, God, there's, this is that's so it's crazy that you started with the giants, not only because they're the locals. So it makes logical sense, but you're starting with the franchise that just has, and this does not bias at all, I promise. <laughs> it just has so much to it that it's so hard to be able to say, well, Will Clark's number 10, you know? <laughs> oh, let me let me give you my number nine since we're there anyway. Um, that's sorry, why, the, that's, uh, you know, it just ended yeah. up being a good segue for, for us to <laughs> yeah, go it, from your Will Clark at number 10 to my Will Clark at number nine. No, it's perfect. Um, so again, I always feel like anybody who listens to your your podcast who might be a Giants fan, I just I, I feel the the pitchforks and and voodoo dolls coming for me by getting any of these names in the wrong order. But this is my list, nobody else's. But I, I'm actually putting Orlando Cepeda at number nine. Um, the, the Bull, I believe, is the, as was his nickname. Um, the dude was. Um, 11-time All-Star. He was a Rookie of the Year. He's a Hall of Famer. He won an MVP, but that was with St. Louis when he went to the Cardinals and helped them finish first ahead of the Giants and win the 67 World Series. But um, when he was with the Giants, uh, nine years, you know, he who was uh, slugged over 500, batting average of over 300, 
He was a 40, you know, he had a, a, a year where he finished behind Frank Robinson in the MVP in, in 61. He had 46 homers, 142 RBIs. That's, that's monster numbers. Even in, back in the 60s, that, and that was the uh, Roger Maris time when they were, you know, the Mickey Mantle time when these power hitters were still uh, kind of rare, you know. I'm not, I'm not calling it dead ball or anything, but um, – he had 46 homers and driving 142 runs and you finished second in the MVP because someone was still better than you and, and hit 311 slug over 600. I, I just, um, Orlando Cepeda, that that's my number nine. Uh, he's got a great concession stand at the, uh, Oracle park. And, uh, if anything else that should earn him a spot on the list by itself. <laughs> the, uh, cha-cha bowl is without a doubt the best concession item at, I'm sorry, I'm still going to call it at t park. I know that it's not AT&T Park anymore. I'm still going to call it AT&T Park. And again, great segue. My number eight is also Orlando Cepeda. And I just think that he came on the scene with such a big boom. You know, his first year, he hit 312 at 25 homers, 96 RBI. Follows that up in 1959. He had six consecutive all-star appearances from 59 to 64. He played more than 140 games in each of those seasons. And it's kind of sad that his Giants career kind of came to an end with a whimper. He only played 33 games in 1965. He played only 19 games in 1966 before he was traded to the Cardinals. And he had a stretch of two and a half years with St. Louis. Then he went to Atlanta. He kind of bounced around. But his early years with the Giants, he only hit below 300 once. He was over 95 RBI every time he wasn't a big on base guy relative to his batting average. But the thing about him is that he was just that impactful of a player to that era of teams and a great compliment alongside Willie Mays as Willie Mays was getting into more of the twilight era of his career. I I can't say twilight because Willie Mays was really good for a long time, more of the veteran age of his prime, but, People also forget he was an original San Francisco Giant. 1958 was his rookie year. That was the first year that the Giants were in San Francisco. That's awesome. Yeah. I love that. Um, I, I think my what's nice about – we talked a little bit about Will Clark. That's, you know, that – and I would say an era bygone, maybe – I would call it three eras ago. If you talk about 10, 12, 14 being like a recent era and then – that 97 to 05 stretch being another era and then an 87 to 90 stretch being like a third era ago. Um, but my eight is another, you know, more recent era. And I, it, it's, it's actually weird for me to put this guy at eight. Cause I want to put him at number one. He's my guy, but Buster Posey is, is, is my number eight. Um, the reason I put Buster Posey at eight uh, is because his numbers just aren't as gaudy as a lot of the other historically amazing Hall of Fame Giants guys. That's just a given. He's a catcher, and so it's hard for him to have gaudy, gaudy numbers. But um, he is an amazing player, he, and, he's, and he's won everything. He's won Rookie of the Year. He's won MVP. He's won uh, – did, did he not have a batting title at one time, I think? He has MVP t- – or excuse me, World Series titles. I mean, the guy has done – everything and so that kind of goes to the like who do you want you know on your roster going going for it all I mean that's what buoys him above some of these other great players but uh Buster Posey is a guy that I walked up to in Modesto and he was playing high A for San Jose and I got an autograph from him and he's been my dude ever since I remember when they drafted him um out of Florida State and that was when I first started kind of paying attention to the minor league so I feel like Buster Posey's kind of always been my guy um, before I ever knew anything about prospects and all this stuff. And um, so I stuck him at number eight. I just feel like uh, the awards are there, but the numbers aren't, but he certainly deserves a spot on this. Yeah. I think we have a bit of a differing perspective on Buster Posey in terms of the impact. I think that we both are kind of looking at these lists in terms of stats versus impact. And I had to make a tough choice as we're now on to number seven. It was between two pitchers, and number seven for me is Juan Marichal, who played almost his entire career with the Giants. Did you know this, by the way, Mark, 
that Juan Marichal, his last two starts of his major league career, the only two starts he made in 1975, came with the L.A. Dodgers? I don't want to say that I absolutely didn't know that, but I would not have been able to remember that, like, you know, on a trivia game or anything like that. I would not have known that. Juan Marichal was probably one of the best starting pitchers in the 1960s, and the 60s was an era where you had a lot of great starting pitchers. Marichal won at least 20 games in seven different seasons. Check that, six different seasons as a part of the 60s Giants. His best season came in 1963 when he won 25 games. He had an ERA of 241. He pitched 321 innings. You could also rival that 1968 could have been his best season. 26-9 and record with a 243 earned run average, 325 and two-thirds innings of work, and he faced... 1,307 batters, which also led the league. He had eight consecutive All-Star appearances from 1962 to 1969. His last All-Star appearance came in 1971. Overall, he had a career ERA of 289 with a 243 win tally. I mean, Juan Marichal had probably one of the biggest leg kicks, the classic leg kick a Dominican native. He was, he probably, in my opinion, ushered in the great era of Latin American pitchers. And I think that if you were to ask any successful Latin American pitcher from the nineties, I wouldn't even say today because I'm sure he might be lost in a lot of people today, but a lot of Latin American pitchers from the 1990s, you know, the Pedro Martinez era guys, they ask, who did you look up to? I'm pretty sure a lot of them would say Juan Marichal. I can't remember the exact interview, but I swear I've seen or heard or watched on TV, uh, you know, Hall of Famer Pedro Martinez say that he grew up idolizing, wanting to be as successful as Juan Marichal. Um, he's got a statue on Third Street in front of the stadium, as he very well deserves. Um He's definitely on my list as well, but he's going to come up a little later. My seven is another pitcher. Um, you're right. I I think I'm taking this list in terms of stats more than impact. Um, I did think of this when I was putting this list together. Um, I know it's a different franchise and also a rival franchise, but if you ask me who's a better pitcher, Clayton Kershaw or Madison Bumgarner, I would say Clayton Kershaw. And the reason is because Clayton Kershaw goes out there for six months and is better than anybody. Now, I know he's had problems in that four-week stint where Madison Bumgarner has not had any problems in that four-week stint, and that's why the Giants have three titles and the Dodgers have none, um, which I enjoy saying. But um, uh, I still, when I'm looking about great Giants, um, you can factor in so many different things. And I don't want to just only go by numbers. That's why I put Buster Posey on the list to begin with. Because if it was about numbers, he probably wouldn't be on the list besides a few good seasons. But he has won awards and guided the pitching staff that helped them lead three titles. And Madison Bumgarner is my number seven um, because they don't win those titles without him, at least not the last two. Maybe the first one. I know he was uh, a rook in that first year. But um, Madison Bumgarner has done things that some people just have never done in, in the postseason and he's no longer a giant now, but he's going to, he's a forever giant for sure on this list. Um, and he's never won a Cy Young. He's never, it's not even about that. It's just, this is where impact does kind of put him on the list more than, than numbers. All those numbers have been very good as well. So my number six, and this was difficult because of again, impact versus numbers. Madison Bumgarner is going to come up a little bit later on my list just because of the impact that he had. But if you're looking for gaudy stats and you're looking for somebody that just came out and dominated in an era where it was all about the pitching, and this is one of the reasons why I don't have him as high as I'm going to have Mad Bum, and that's Christy Mathewson. Christy Mathewson won 373 career games for the New York Giants and the Cincinnati Reds. He only actually pitched one game. He won his only game in 1916 with the Cincinnati Reds. He pitched from the Giants 
from 1900 to 1916. He had a career ERA of 213. In 1908, he won 37 games. He made 44 starts, 56 total appearances. He had 34 complete games, 11 shutouts. He pitched 390 innings. 390 innings. He had 10 years where he threw over 300 innings. 10 different years that he threw over 300 innings. And you know what? He never won an MVP. The Cy Young Award didn't exist back then because Cy Young was still pitching in that era. But in terms of MVP, he was second in the MVP voting in 1911. He was fourth in 1913. But Christy Mathewson is one of those names that gets lost because he pitched in an era that was so pitcher-friendly that I don't think a lot of people necessarily appreciate how good he actually was. This was an era when Frank Home Run Baker, that was his nickname, Home Run Baker, had a career year of six homers in his highest ever home run output. So it's an era that favored pitchers more than anybody. But I do think that it is worth noting that Christy Mathewson, for at least what the pure numbers state, in an era that so much favored the pitchers, was as dominant as can be. And that's why he is number six for me. Yeah, I um, I think we're going to be a little bit reverse on that. He's super high for me. Maybe our Madison Bumgarner, Christy Mathewson's are reversed um, because I'm buoying career longevity numbers over impact. I mean, he was part of five pennants. And had the Giants not lost three World Series in a row, you would have talked about Christy Mathewson, the four-time World Series winner. Five-time, if they thought the Red Sox were worth actually playing in 1904 as well, when they said, no, we're not playing those guys in the World Series. They're not good enough. They're not worth our time. (laughs) But um, my number six uh, is a little bit more recent than way back Christy Mathewson. It's it's Willie McCovey. Um, Another one of those lovable players, but also very, very good. Another rookie of the year, another MVP. Um, the guy was just, you know, career 270 batting average, 500 homers. He had 100 RBIs in four different years. I mean, he just stuck around. You know, the guy had a 22 year career, and 19 of them were with the Giants. And it was through the entire 60s and into the 70s. And he was six-time All-Star. He was All-Star Game MVP. He he just kind of like I was talking about with Buster Posey. He he did it all. Um, and so he's also got a statue now, way out there. He's got a cove named that body of water named after him. I mean, you, this guy can't not be on the list when you're talking about all-time great Giants. So Willie McCovey is your number six. So let's yeah. go to number five. Top five now. My number five was difficult. And this is kind of where we're going to get a lot of the same answers, maybe in different orders. I had to go with Buster Posey at number five. And the reason why I went Buster Posey at number five is just because of how impactful he was in every Giants World Series title of the 2010s. And he had some great years. I think that we have a little bit of recency bias in regards to Buster Posey because of the fact that he has not been as productive in the past few years. But Buster Posey is the reason why the Giants were as good as they were in the early part of the 2010s. In his rookie year in 2010, he played 108 games coming up, replacing Benjamin Lina mid-year. He hit 305. In his MVP year in 2012, he hit 336 with an on-base of 408. He had an OPS plus of 171, an OPS of 957, 24 homers, 103 RBI. Buster Posey from 2010 to 2018 never hit below 280. His 2019 season, he hit 257. That was his lowest career batting average of over 100 games. Now, in 2011, he obviously had his season cut short due to an injury, the Scott Cousins play that is so widely known in Giants lore as what ruined that 2011 season. But I think you and I can both agree that team couldn't hit even if they did have Buster Posey. But Posey did such a great job of 
handling that pitching staff and maximizing everything that you could get out of guys like Lincecum, Kane, Bumgarner, Jonathan Sanchez on the early end of things, Ryan Vogelsong on the later end of things. You know, the the studs in that bullpen, like a Jeremy Affeld and a Javier Lopez, you know, Brian Wilson going to Santiago Casilla to Sergio Romo. I mean, Buster Posey just had that big of an impact on the success of the team. And I don't think that he is as highly regarded on this list if he as he is, at least on my list, if he doesn't win three World Series. But when you talk about beloved franchise figures, he is the face of the modern San Francisco Giants. And he is one of the catalysts for why they won three World Series. You know, the power numbers were never there with him, but they weren't about the power numbers. It was about getting on base. It was about being a productive at bat. And it was about being somebody that led the team in areas that didn't necessarily show up on the stat sheet. And that's why I got Buster Posey at number five. Not not a bad choice. I think you could do an entire podcast episode just on, you know, what could have been with Posey had he not gone down um, in that game. Former USF baseball player and WCC player of the year, Scott Cousins, by the way. And believe it or not, not convenient to say this, I was at that game where um, Scott Cousins kind of went out of the baseline a little bit to take him out. Although, boy, this is also going to draw the ire of many. Um, I don't blame Buster Posey, but he was not in a very good crouching position. And that's also what lent to the horrificness of that injury. Um, the thing is, when when he went down with that injury in 2011, we don't have to go off on this tangent, but the Giants had a multi-game division lead in late May, which I know is not anything. You're talking about two months into the season. The Giants were up in the division. And I know, yes, you're right. Besides him and Pablo Sandoval, they were really not, anybody was hitting above 230. And so they were going to have their struggles perhaps anyway. But when you put Buster Posey in that lineup and he's defending people or protecting, like making ripple effects through the lineup around him, uh, now you're talking about a guy who maybe wins another MVP. The Giants win three straight World Series. Now he's, He's healthy and he doesn't have that time off. Maybe he doesn't have the hip surgery last year. And, you know, you just never know what could have happened without that stuff. You just can talk about it all day. Uh, my five is Marischal. You gave all the um, you gave all the right uh, stats earlier. The guy is an all-timer. This is the guy who went, what was it, 16 innings, complete game, wins like a one nothing game. I mean, nobody does that. And it'll never happen again. Um my dad was actually at the game. My dad will tell the story about the first ever baseball game he went to. He went with his dad. He was six, seven, eight years old. He was more crawling around the bleachers and the seats looking for things to mess around with and paying attention. And he's wondering why all of a sudden there's a big ruckus. And it's because Juan Marichal is going after Dodgers catcher with a bat. My dad was at that game. That was his first ever baseball game. Um, but Juan Marichal, definitely a top five all-time giant for me, my number five. It's amazing when you talk about the depth of this franchise, and we're going to be doing a lot of lists. Some of these I'm going to have guests like I have with Mark today. Some of them I'm not, but I. one of the things that's amazing about this franchise to me is that there are a lot of different franchises where these lists are easy. Like It's easy to, to say who's at the top, and who's going to be your three, four, and five? It's hard just because this is a franchise that has had so much success over the course of different eras. And it's somewhat difficult if you didn't actually observe that era in person to really appreciate the greatness of what that player was. But I think it just gives a lot of credit to the Giants as a franchise for being able to bring the past into the present. I feel like the Giants do as good of a job as anybody in terms of honoring their past. Oh yeah. They don't, they don't let anybody forget. Um, you know, you go to the ballpark and there's eight world series flags up there. There's not three, you know, there's 22 NL pennant flags up there. There's not seven or eight of them or whatever. How many they've won in San Francisco. Um, I was actually at a game a year or two ago and I was kind of, talking about the flags and somebody was like, I'm from, maybe from out of town, I'm like, oh, what's that? And I started going, well, that's 
blah, blah, blah. That's how many flags they've won this. That's how many that. And he looked at me kind of jokingly like, you must be a Giants fan. I was like, yeah. But I mean, the history is there. You can't, you can't miss it. Um, and they did that even when they built the ballpark, just by making it rustic, kind of like the old Camden Yards look with the bricks and, and everything that's named after somebody. Um, they don't let you forget. So they, I agree with you. They do a good job of that. Uh, we want to do number four. Number four, I am going to go with Madison Bumgarner. Now, Mad Bum had some great years statistically. He was somebody that had a gigantic impact on the giant success of the early 2010s and really had the longevity that guys like Kane and Lincecum did not have with the franchise. But Bumgarner was good as soon as he burst on the scene in 2010. He had a three-flat ERA in 18 starts. Then from 2011 until 2018, Mad Bum never had an ERA above 3-4, which is amazing. And he got so much better during the course of the mid-2010s. His ERA went from 321 in 2011 to 337 in 2012 to 277 in 2013, 298 in 2014, 293 in 2015, In 2016, he leads Major League Baseball and starts with 34. He goes 15-9 and with a 274 ERA. 2017, his season gets cut short due to a dirt bike accident. In 2018, he has his hand hurt during spring training on a comebacker, makes only 21 starts, still has a 326 ERA, and then last year, He doesn't have a great year, worst DRA of his career, 390, but he still makes 34 starts and he pitches over 200 innings. I mean, what Madison Bumgarner gave you was consistency, dependability, and competitiveness. It was that argument you made earlier about who's the better pitcher, him or Clayton Kershaw. And when you look at the pure numbers, it was 1,000% Clayton Kershaw. But when I see what happened, In that 2014 Game 6 of the World Series, it is so evident to me the X factor of what Madison Bumgarner is. And that's somebody that is going to go out, get you a win, no matter what. And I don't think the Giants win that 2014 World Series without him. I don't think they make the playoffs in 2016 without him. I mean, he was sort of that lone wolf that basically willed that team as far as they went in 2014 and especially getting them to the wild card after they completely fell apart in 2016. Yeah, I was, I was going to totally agree about 2016. I'm glad you said that, uh, that (laughs) man, uh, I don't want to get, you know, upset about remembering some of these squads and what they could have done. What ifs, but, uh, yeah, that 2016 team really limped after the All-Star break, but Madison Bumgarner was still the locomotive. Like you just described everything, the dependability. He was still going out there every five days and doing what he would do. Um, and they only won 87 games. They were on pace to win you know, 95 or whatever it was. But, um, yeah, he was a huge part of that 16 squad, much less as I totally, again, also agree with you that uh, 2014, they don't win it without him. Um the thing too, though, with this, with these numbers, and that's why he was down there, like on seven, whereas Christy Matthewson still hasn't popped up for me. Is we're talking? It's so hard to compare different eras, you know. If Madison Bumgarner is throwing in the nineteen teams, I don't, I'm not saying with two thousands velocity. If, if he's Christy Matthewson in the nineteen teens with his mentality and all that stuff, he probably does the same exact thing. He probably throws 300 million innings and all that stuff. You know, it's hard to compare eras. But my four is Mel Lott. You gave all the numbers earlier. But just a guy that was doing things that hardly anybody else was doing in, in that time. He was the Babe Ruth, the Hank Greenbergs of, of, of that era. And he was, he was one of them. These guys who were all timers. And you pointed out the number. I, I mentioned it a little bit when you did. The walks. You got 100, 100 plus walks in a season back in the 1930s because no one wanted to touch you. That's big time, man. Um, one of the first 500 home run club people, not the first, but one of the first. Um, just an all timer, all those RBIs and everything else we talked about earlier. But uh, Mel Ott, 
in terms of just producing, he's he's number four for me for sure. I can't wait to get to number three, man. This one's going to be good. <laughs> so we've kind of, by process of elimination, we understand where each other's top three are. And I have a feeling mm-hmm. that our top two are going to be the same and in the same order. My number three is stretch Willie McCovey. Now McCovey was only a lifetime 270 hitter, but he spent 19 of his 23 years in the big leagues with the San Francisco giants. And as a giant, he hit 469 of his 521 career homers. He had, Two seasons of 40-plus homers, which in the 60s, still, despite what Roger Maris did, was darn impressive. And he had four years of 100-plus RBI. In 1970, he drew a league-leading 137 walks, and he was really one of the first guys that was one of those big on-base machines. He had two years, one of which he won MVP in 1969, where he had on-base percentages of over 440, which is insane when you think about that type of statistic in the 1960s and early 70s. Stretch did not have a great end to his career. I think that he was one of those guys that his productivity mainly came the first 15 years of his career, and then when he went to the Padres, he just kind of fell off, uh, relatively speaking to what his earlier career numbers were. Had a revival when he came back to the Giants in 1977, and he had 28 homers, but did not have a great end to his career. Obviously, we know the health issues that he had. You know, he died. Gosh, I can't believe this, Mark. I almost feel like it was yesterday. Willie McCovey died October 31st of 2018. It did not feel like it was that long ago that Stretch left us. And I just think that, how he endeared himself to the franchise and the type of power numbers that he put up are one of the reasons why he's my number three. Yeah. He's an all timer for sure. Like I was saying, when I put him at number six, he, 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 you cannot have a top 10 all time giants list without Willie McCovey on there somewhere. And he better be, you know, higher than the, the, the bottom couple. Um, he's got the Cove named after him. He's got a statue out there. He was a huge part of junior giants as well. Um, they've got the team award, you know, for just being, I'm, I'm generalizing it, but for just being a good dude, it's a Willie McCovey award, you know, I mean, um, that's how good of a person he was. And that, that's going to be forever that way. He died two years ago, but 200 years from now, it's still going to be called the Willie McCovey. I don't imagine that it would change. Um, because like you said, this franchise does such a good job of incorporating its history they're not going to change it well eh, we don't really know Willie McCovey anymore we're going to change this award that's that's how big of an impact he made my number three you ready for this 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 is this is the three um I I had to put Barry Bonds at number three um Barry Bonds is one of the greatest players of all time we could have again like I said earlier a podcast that was just about Barry Bonds um but Without doing that, um, you talk about impact, okay? Not just statistical impact, but you talk about the kind of guy that comes up with the bases loaded and you'd rather walk in a run than let him drive in four. Um, <laughs> I mean, he, he didn't just hit home runs and have the on-base percentage and the RBIs. He won batting titles. He stole bases. He won gold gloves. The guy was the epitome of a five-tool player. And I'll just say it, everyone has these stipulations about what he started to do later in his career. Call it my Giants bias or call it, you know, chosen ignorance, I, whatever you want. I don't care. He was already that good and was still that good, regardless of whatever you want to say was going on. Um, he's not just one of the greatest Giants of all time, but one of the greatest players of all time. But I put him number three and not number two, which is probably where you have him. I don't know. For a reason, and, and I'll get there, but I, I why don't you just tell me what your number two is? Well, my number two is Barry Bonds. And okay. you put it you pointed out a lot of great reasons why, you know, he's not higher on the list. One of the reasons for me is that he didn't play his whole career in San Francisco. 
you know, he still had the seven years prior to coming to San Francisco with the Pittsburgh Pirates. Now, granted, he was mostly known as a giant because of his gaudy stats in the early 2000s. But Bonds had some great years in Pittsburgh. His 1990 season, he hit 33 homers, drove in 114 runs. His last year with the Pirates in 92, he hit 34 homers, drove in 103 runs. I mean, there are so many years when he had on-base percentages over 450. I mean, there was that 2004 year where he had an on-base of 609, and he drew 120 intentional walks. 120 intentional walks. Bonds won seven MVPs including four in a row from 01 to 04. The thing about Barry Bonds is the fact that, yes, the questions of steroids do linger over him. And I think he's probably a 500 home run guy without the steroids. He was on that sort of pace. But to me, when I look at the top giant of all time, because of the fact that he played in an era that favored hitters and he may have had some form of an advantage, and the fact that he didn't play his entire career with the Giants is why he's not number one. And I'm pretty sure, and I'll just have you give your number two, which I'm pretty sure what that is, that our number one is pretty much consensus, not just of us, but of every Giants fan and every baseball fan that is well enough educated. Yeah, I was going to say, it's almost across baseball. There's obviously some other debates, but if this name doesn't pop up as your number one, not just in Giants franchise history, but maybe even baseball history, then you need to go back to the library. Um, yeah, Christy Matheson is my number two. And the, and the reason is just, you talk about gaudy numbers, kind of like Barry Bonds and our and our shared number one. Um, he had them. And we, we went over it already a couple of times when you mentioned him. And then we talked about Madison Bumgarner and comparing the two. Um, so I won't go over all of it again, but um, just... It was like you, I think you painted it really well. It was an era that favored pitchers, which that's fine. And yet, even in that era that favored pitchers, so everyone had that advantage, he did something that nobody else could do. And he did it for 15 years. I mean, with the Giants. Um, and like I said, outside of skipping a World Series and losing three other ones, you might be talking about a guy who has a fistful of rings. If the Giants could have won a couple more with them, much less the Cy Young Award didn't even exist. Uh, the All-Star Game didn't exist. But the guy put up numbers that nobody else was putting up, even in an era that would have allowed them to do so. Um, and uh, I've always been kind of mystified by him. I think that's why he's also higher on my list. I didn't want to put like Posey one, Bumgarner two, Will Clark three, just because like they're re- Barry Bonds four or whatever, because they're more recent in my mind. I, 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 I have always been mystified by this character that played baseball literally a hundred years ago that I never got to see, but did these amazing things. Um, so that's why I put him as my number two. Um, sir, it's your podcast. Do you kind of want to go over uh, number one or do you want me to kind of start and you could fill in your, your spots? Well, I think the number one is pretty obvious to anybody that follows baseball, that knows the history of baseball. It's the say, hey, kid, Willie Mays. And I mean, Willie Mays had one of the greatest careers in an era that did not inspire offensive brilliance. I mean, Willie Mays did it all. He had 660 career homers. He had a 302 lifetime batting average, 1900 RBI. Willie Mays had two 50-plus homer seasons. 1955, he hit 51, and in 1965, he hit 52. He hit 50 homers in two years that were 10 years apart. He led the league in homers four different times. But the most impressive stat to me, and I was looking at baseball reference, I saw a 20 and a league leader by his name, and I'm like, man, he only hit 20 homers that one year. That was rare for Mays. It was 20 triples. In 1957, he hit 35 homers and had 20 triples. Like, who (laughs) has 20 triples in any season? I mean, that was just how good of an athlete he was. And let me just read you some of the awards that Willie Mays had, and then I'll let you finish up. 1954, he was an all-star, won the MVP. All right, you know, I won't read the all-star. Because he made every All-Star team from 1954 to 1973. He had 19 straight years 
of all-star appearances. He would have made the all-star team in 1953, but he didn't play because he was in the military. He won the MVP in 1954 and 1965. But to give you an idea of where he was in MVP voting, he was fourth in 55. He was second in 58. He was third in 60. Second in 62. Fifth in 63. He was third in 66. And then the MVPs stopped coming in. But he won gold gloves in... I'm trying to count these up here. I'm not really doing my mental math. He won gold gloves in 12 consecutive years. That's insane. I mean, for my money, when you talk about the best baseball players of all time, when you talk about five-tool player, people will say, well, Babe Ruth was the best power hitter of all time, or this guy was the best contact hitter of all time. This guy was the best, you know, Ricky Anderson was the best base stealer of all time. Was there a better all-around player in baseball history than Willie Mays? And I think when people talk about Mike Trout and the greatness of Mike Trout today, you know, I look at social media all the time and I see people going gaga over Mike Trout. Well, you know what? Mike Trout could not even stand in the shadow of Willie Mays because Willie Mays in that era was that good. Yeah. Uh, I <laughs> And I, and I really do feel to, the difference in today's game is not so much ability. It's just speed, right? I mean, and that's for all sports. You know, the world records are set in swimming and track and NFL guys are just faster now. It's not so much that they're more skilled. Um, so when it comes to velocity and bat speed and, and all these things, that, that's the difference in today's game. But I do believe that if Willie Mays, you know, a Willie Mays brain was put in a 2000s era, you know, baseball body, he would be five times better than Mike Trout. I mean, that's that's how good um, he was. You you labeled it all, and it's just un, unheard of. Um, but even without uh, the titles, um, talk about five tools. I mentioned that about Barry Bonds. You know, Barry Bonds was the, was, it was the first 40-40 guy, right? Um 1956, Willie Mays was only four homers short of being the first 40-40 guy. But he still had six straight years where he was 20-20. And in two of those, he was 30-30. He was hitting homers and stealing bases because he had the speed. And then on top of that, he was winning gold gloves. Um, and don't forget, those that year that he had 20 triples, that was the last year that they played in the polo grounds. So I don't want to take anything away from Willie Mays, but it's probably a little easy to hit some triples in the polo grounds. Um, but yeah, I, the absolute all-time greatest, I'll just go ahead and say it. You can throw, not you, but anybody else can throw all the other great time names that you want at me. But Willie Mays, if he's not the greatest player of all time, he's certainly you know, number two or maybe no, no lower than three. And so certainly he would top this list. It's just, I, I I'm doing the same as you I'm looking at numbers, you know, his OPS is his slugging uh, beyond base percentages, the, the batting averages. It's just, uh, if you were saying, Hey, uh, we want some standards for who's going to make the hall of fame. Okay, cool. Yeah. I would write all of these numbers. <laughs> these are the numbers that I would write. And he had them all. Um, unbelievable, man. Unbelievable. The other thing about Willie Mays, I think he would have had 700 homers if he wasn't playing at Candlestick Park. I truly believe that. I mean, Candlestick Park was one of those environments where it was really tough to hit homers in. And he still had four years with the Giants in San Francisco where he hit 40-plus homers. Now, granted, you know, I'd have to go back and look and see, like, which one of those was at which park. But the fact that you're playing half your games at the stick and the fact that it was that difficult to hit home runs there speaks volumes for the type of player that Willie Mays was. Yeah, especially as I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to sound like I'm forcing data here, but especially as a he was a right-handed guy, um, and I don't you know, it's not like the candlestick had a short right field porch, but um, just the, the way the wind swirled in there, I just feel like left-handers had a little bit easier time than right-handers did trying to get out there, especially when they folded up the seats from football games. They all folded into the right field and right center. 
Um, whereas left and left center was still like the open bowl and bleachers. And so you just had wind that was kind of swirling and sitting um, out there and left. I don't want to, again, I don't want to sound like I'm just making this up to sound like it's, it's thing, but you know, if he's a lefty, maybe he gets two or three or five more homers or, you know, each year. Um, or like you said, if he's just not playing at candlestick, if he's playing, God forbid, like you know, <laughs> Dodger stadium, or, or if he's playing at, at a place like AT&T now, or, um, or Oracle, excuse me, I know you want to stick with AT&T, but I'm the sports info guy. So I got to stick with what's right. <laughs> but, um, the, uh, you know, he could get the, you're not asking for a lot. You're asking about 40 more homers over a 22 year career. I think you could find one, two, three, four homers extra a year for him that are affected by the ballpark. I think you're 100% right about that. And with that, we will wrap it up. Our top 10 San Francisco Giants. He is Mark Rivera. I am Greg Marais. If you have your own top 10 list, you can tweet at us. I am at Greg D. Mraz. He is at, do I have this right, Mark T. Rivera? Yeah, underscores in between the T's. Yep. Tweet at us if you've got any difference on your opinion of the greatest San Francisco Giants of all time. Our list that we will be debuting on Thursday. We are going to be doing the top 10 Chicago Cubs. This will be a very interesting list because, like the Giants, another franchise that has had a lot of great players over the span of 100 years. This is Greg Moraz. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the AM.